Hello, this is William Pink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 15th, 2022. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 68 of this series. In our last presentation of these 100 proofs, we discussed the critical importance of the words of the prophets to interpretations of Christianity as attested by both Christ and the apostles. Then we discussed what Yahweh God had cleansed on the cross of Christ, which must have been the children of Israel, whom he had promised to cleanse in the words of those same prophets. So if God had only cleansed certain men, as he had promised, it must be evident that there were men who were not cleansed by him, men who could not be cleansed, and that shall be our subject in this presentation this evening. Some portions of the following two proofs were already discussed in our proof on all of the mistranslations found in the letters of Paul. However, they merit separate treatment because they each stand as proofs on their own. That the Israelites were white, as they demonstrate that the gospel was intended exclusively for the white Europeans to whom the apostles had evangelized. Truth is, thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, so we're on to men who could not be cleansed. And um, th there was a time, maybe a few decades ago, when Christians would have accepted that, right? But they'd have a different version of that. N nowadays, they believe um, that anybody can go to heaven, uh, whatever method, right? Through Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. But a, a while ago, people would accept that only certain people go to heaven and some don't and it's if christ cleanses you but they would mistakenly believe that it's believers versus non-believers right but it, but if you understand that christianity was to divide the world right as christ said he came to divide and christianity was for that purpose for, for the israelites and the non-israelites and that's simply how there are people cleansed and people not cleansed right because only uh, Europe accepted Christianity, and it's only in the past few centuries where we've went around and forcefully converted, and, and now all these non-white nations have a false sense of Christianity that we're deceived into believing, oh, well, maybe they're also cleansed, right? But but as you've said many times, it's a, it's a false Christianity, and it's not real. And there was a time when all Europeans accepted Christianity across the board, right? So, so with that, we, we should really understand that only the Europeans are cleansed and all non-whites have no hope of redemption and they'll never be cleansed. Right, Bill? Well, right. And, and what you're really referring to is the scope of the gospel, as we are going to call it in an upcoming presentation, which discusses that very thing. And what is the world? And John 3.16, is the gospel really to save everybody on the planet, which is how that word world is interpreted by Judeo-Christians today, whereas little as 500 years ago, Martin Luther described all the world 
as the Christian nations of Europe. So his view of all the world is very different than the modern Judeo-Christian view. And we will see what the scope of the world was with the apostles themselves. So the world is not the planet. The world is basically the white world of it, of that time, which was the Greco-Roman world, and not the whole planet. And the apostles had professed in their time that the gospel was already preached in all the world. 1,500 years before, any boneheaded European missionary ever thought to print Bibles in African languages that didn't even have alphabets until those same missionaries invented alphabets for them. So even everything we know about modern, quote-unquote, African society was organized by whites, by white men. And they didn't have a commission from Christ to do that. There was no commission. And um, even all their history is uh, generally just invented, right? Whites, or especially Jews now, have tried to cobble together some form of history over the past, you know, few centuries and before that. And probably the same with um, China, India, you know, they make up these stories of uh, great so-called civilizations and, and they'll find some palace and invent some story. But the truth is they were probably built by white civilizations and left there, right? If there's any kind of um, structures or anything like that. Well, well, right. Even China, there, there was a huge influx at one time of white people from Middle Asia who had come into China and, and helped build Chinese civilization. But that history, the true history, is long forgotten and long destroyed. So... They're trying to cobble up a history for these modern Chinese people, which really didn't belong to the modern Chinese people in the way that we see these people today. They were there, but they didn't have the predominant role that they are promoted as having had today. Everything that they have in the East is a result of Western interference in Asia, all the militarization and all the mechanization in Japan, Korea, China has come from the West in the last 200 years. Western industrialization of those nations with large injections of Western technology, they would never have done any of that on their own. All of the early Japanese corporations were actually Western corporations, Japan Victor Company. And Sony, which stands for Standard Oil of New York, that's where the name Sony came from. These Western corporations investing and developing industries in these Asian countries so that they could profit by them. Okay, that's a digression too. Proof number 86, men who could not be cleansed. In John chapter 13, there is a detailed description of the event which is popularly called the Last Supper. 
And the apostle explained how Christ had washed the feet of all of the disciples. So as he proceeded to do that, we read in part from verse 8, Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. Now, of course, they walked around a dry, sandy climate with sandals on, with feet that were practically bare, and it was customary for people to wash their feet before they reclined on couches to eat their food. The Greeks didn't sit at tables with chairs and leave their feet on the floor. They reclined on these couches and ate. There are many images of them doing that with their feet up on the couches, so they would wash their feet first. If you don't understand the entire circumstances of the time, sometimes some of these customs are, are going to be a mystery, and they're easily resolved with an understanding of, of how people lived at that time. So saying that, there is no indication that Christ did not wash the feet of all of the disciples who were present, including those of Judas Iscariot. Yet John made a parenthetical remark in the next verse and said, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. But how could Judas not have been clean, even if it was he who had betrayed Christ? The same Christ had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 12, speaking at an earlier time, Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. So is Christ a liar? All Judas did was tell the authorities where he was located in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's all he did, and he led them to him and pointed them out. So he spoke a word against the Son of Man, and it won't be forgiven him. Why is that? Why is it that Judas could not be cleaned? Where Christ said, And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Therefore, if Judas were an Israelite under the law, he would have been forgiven for having betrayed Christ, for having spoken a word against the Son of Man. And um, Bill, that shows that even, um, you know, 
white pagans or people who um, don't consider themselves Christian, they'll be forgiven, as he just said, even if you speak against Christ, he'll forgive you. But against the Holy Ghost, uh, w which we realize is race mixing, that won't be forgiven, right? That's another story. Right. That Holy Spirit is the spirit of separation. Yahweh God commands, ye be holy as I am holy. The children of Israel were to be a separate people, period. And they're commanded to be. Even in the New Testament, Peter admonishes them to be a holy nation because they are a chosen race. As the word should have been read in the King James Version. And a holy nation means a nation separated and dedicated to God. A single race of people separated and dedicated to God. So if Judas couldn't be clean, there must have been another reason why Judas could not have been clean. An indication of that reason is found in John chapter 6. There we have an account where many of those who had been following Christ had departed. And we read, And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God, the promised Son of the second Psalms. The second Psalm, I'm sorry. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now John makes a remark that he surely couldn't have made with the knowledge that he had at the time the words were actually spoken. But John is writing his gospel many, many years later. Even at the table at the Last Supper, the apostles did not know who was going to betray Christ when he told them that one of them was going to betray him. And Peter asked, is it I? And he got John to ask Christ if it was Peter, as the accounts read. So if John had to ask whether or not it was Peter, then of course John didn't know either. But this gospel is being written several years, many years later, many years after it had all happened. So John has the benefit of having greater insight and greater hindsight into the events. So, John makes a note here as he's writing his gospel many years later. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And um, what Jews always say is, well, he said that Peter, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, so Judas couldn't have been a real literal devil. It was just a, a figure of speech, right? But what, but what he's saying is uh, Judas Garrett is a physical devil and nothing will change that. But anyone could uh, go along with the Jews, you know, sell out and they would join Satan. But ultimately, they'll still be forgiven in, in the end times, right? It's a completely different concept, right? 
Absolutely, it's a different concept. A devil is a devil. Satan is simply an adjective which means adversary. Anybody could be your adversary at any given time if we examine the text in the context of when Christ had said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. First, in the Greek language, there is not a definite article on Satan. Peter is not being called the Satan. Peter is not the devil as Roman Catholics picture that word devil. But Satana is just a Hellenization of a Greek word which means adversary. Peter was arguing with Christ when Christ had explained that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised again the third day. Christ is telling Peter what had to happen, what God decreed would happen. And Peter is arguing with him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So for that reason, Christ had called Peter an adversary. And he was admonishing him. Yeah, and even if you just play a game of chess, right? The the other guy is your, your Satan, your adversary. Right. Chess, handball, whatever. The, the other guy is your adversary in that context. But that doesn't make him the devil. That's ridiculous. The Roman Catholic view of scriptures is often simplistic and childish, and they run into many errors in doctrine because of that. So there must have, here it is evident with Judas being called a devil. It is evident that Christ had purposely chosen as one of his apostles, a man who was not one of his own sheep, so that his betrayer would be one of his enemies, and therefore none of his own would have to live forever with the burden of guilt that would accompany the task which Judas had performed. This becomes more evident, I believe, in the 41st Psalm, where that very event is prophesied. Yeah, and this is from verse 9 of the psalm. Yeah, mine own familiar friend. Keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. That's an adage that must come from this passage and this event in the scripture. Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, and it was upon the eating of bread that the betrayer was going to be revealed, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, O Yahweh, be merciful unto me, and raise me up that I might requite them, which means to pay them back with vengeance. So Christ was raised after he was betrayed. And the heel evokes the language of Genesis chapter 3.15. By this I know that thou favorest me, because mine enemy does not triumph over me. So, the old familiar friend was really actually an enemy. 
And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and settest me before thy face forever. Which is an and illusion. Bill, this is also like a life lessons that um, a Jew will always do this to you, right? If you let him in the group, he's always going to betray you, right? As many of our people have learned, but often too late. Well, well, it's absolutely a life lesson, and it's the intrinsic nature of the enemies of God to act as they do and to betray you even when they pretend to be your friends. Judas may not have done this consciously. He almost certainly did not do this consciously. He was just following his own intrinsic character. It was his inherent nature that led him to do the things that he did. And God knew that. He must have known that. He is God. And that's why he chose Judas to fulfill that role. So later on in John, in John chapter 12, and this isn't really in my notes, but it's something I'm adding in here. Judas had, had sort of protested at a woman who had anointed Christ with very expensive ointment with oil. It was probably myrrh. In fact, it was myrrh according to the Greek word. And he was protesting that and he said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence or denarii and given to the poor? Like the Jew really has any care for the poor. This is why every Jew that doesn't work in the bank seeks to found a charity today. And, and Jews are founding charities every day, it seems. There's a new Jewish charity out there. So John says, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare or carried what was put therein. In other words, Judas was the treasurer of the group. So he was stealing money from the group when they were pooling their funds or, or receiving gifts from, from the disciples of Christ. Judas was stealing the money. He was siphoning off the money, just like a million Jews do in charities today. It's their inherent nature. And if we can't learn this lesson, then we are actually missing a large part of the message of the gospel. Yeah, I was going to say, he sounds like a Jew through and through, right? And um, that those charities are perfect for them because you get um, whites who do it voluntarily, who work either for free or no salary out of the kindness of their heart. And um, people would just if they've got like a big wardrobe, they'll just donate it to the charity thinking, oh, this will help white people. And then the Jew owns it, just keeps all the money for himself and makes huge profits with uh, no cost, right? Because they're all working for free and it's all donated. They, they love that type of business model. Absolutely. They don't have to produce anything but sympathy. And it's pretty easy to produce sympathy. Okay. <laughs> Ostensibly. Judas was from the south of Judea, from Kerioth, which seems to be the meaning of the word Iscariot. 
a Hellenization of the Hebrew words ish, which means man, and kerioth. In the second century, Diatessaron of Tatian, an early Christian writer, Simon, the father of Judas, is called Simon Iscariot. When Christ called Judas a devil, Judas had not yet done anything of which he could be accused, and he remained a disciple until the time would come when he betrayed him. Furthermore, the act of betrayal of Christ was not a sin. Judas was informing the authorities of the time who were hostile to Christ of the location of Christ at a given time and led them to him and pointed out which of the men in the Garden of Gethsemane that night was Christ. That isn't a breaking of the law. I've never found a law that that stood in violation of. Even though we know in our hearts that it was a hostile act, it wasn't a breaking of the law. So Judas really didn't sin in the manner of violating the law. He did sin in regards to friendship and care for someone, knowing that the authorities of the time were unjust, unrighteous authorities. So he was a traitor in that manner. There's no doubt. But please show me which law he violated. Because he himself made no accusations against Christ that are recorded. So, at that earlier time, Christ could not have been merely slandering him. So there must have been a deeper and more substantial reason which provided a basis for the accusation that he was a devil. Ancient Kerioth was a town of Judah on the border of Edom, which is evident in Joshua chapter 15, verses 21 to 25. It was not one of the towns resettled by those of Judah, who returned in the days of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, or Ezra, and there's good reason for that. After the Babylonian deportations of Judah, the Edomites had migrated northwards and took most of the southern portions of Judah and Israel for themselves, as well as the cities of the coasts. But Jerusalem and the surrounding villages as well as most of Galilee, apparently remained unsettled, and the people of Judah who returned in the Persian period, 70 years after the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, had settled in those places. So Judas, being from Kerioth, certainly must have been an Edomite, while the other apostles, all of whom were from Galilee, were all Israelites. Evidently, Judas was one of the Edomites who were forcibly converted to Judaism in the time of the Maccabees, a process which took place from the time of John Hyrcanus to that of 
Alexander Janius, which was from about 134 BC to about 76 BC in that period, that 58-year period, where Josephus records that these men, these high priests, who were functioning as kings, but they were only high priests, had gone out and conquered all of the surrounding villages and towns of the Edomites and forcibly converted them all to Judaism and had them all circumcised. And Josephus had said that thereafter they had been considered nothing else but Jews or Judeans. Next, there are the words of Paul of Tarsus in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul made a prayer, and the King James Version reads, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. And we have to focus here on that last clause, for all men have not faith. The last clause of this verse is consistent. In all of the ancient Greek manuscripts, which are cited by the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Greca. So, indisputably, the text of the clause is for I'm sorry, it's really five Greek words. Ugar panton hepistis. So the word for men, which is italicized in the King James Version there, does not appear in the clause. So they put it in italics. But neither does the word or the verb have. And quite dishonestly, that word was not italicized in the King James Version. There is no verb in the clause. So we shall examine this clause more closely because in the Christogenian New Testament we have translated it since the faith is not for all. And that's a huge difference between all men have not faith and the faith is not for all. But that's what it's saying. It's saying the faith is not for all. So examining... Bill, I just had a look. Sorry, I was just going to interject. So I just looked at the Vulgate, and it has... Um, the, for the faith is not of all as well. Right. Interestingly, so even in the third century, they still had that. And the Vulgate is the... Basically an exact literal translation of that clause, for the faith is not of all. But that genitive case denoting source or possession, as I will explain here, we would colloquially say that in English, that the faith is not for all, as far as I'm concerned. So that's the way I translated it. But I'll address that here later. But right, the Vulgate, if that's what it said, because I really don't care about Latin or Syriac or other languages, I think the Latin, the old Latin versions are more important 
when we seek to interpret the Septuagint, because the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew into Greek, and the Vulgate is a translation of the Hebrew into Latin. And that is, I believe, more instrumental to our studies and understanding of the what the original text of the Hebrew Old Testament may have been. Because by the time those translations were made, it was already corrupt. But that comparison does help us a lot. So we can read Greek for ourselves. And we don't really have to read Greek by looking at the translations of the Greek of the New Testament in the Latin Vulgate. So I don't really, that's just like getting another opinion of what the Greek may have said, but then it has to be translated twice from Greek into Latin and from Latin into English. And I don't think we need that extra step, but it is interesting to see that in the Vulgate, this clause was correctly translated that the faith is not of all, meaning that the faith does not belong to everyone. And the way I interpret that in modern colloquial English, it's not for everyone. And we will explain yeah, that. Yes. So what I meant was it must have been in, in England that they didn't like that translation, right? So they changed it. It must have been because they probably could not understand it. They didn't have the historical background, the background of historical knowledge of what was really going on in first century Judea and the among the diaspora of Israelites and Judeans throughout the ancient world, where you had these Judeans who were Israelites, but you also had Judeans who were Edomites throughout every city of the Roman Empire. And the scripture was the gospel, was the word of God, which we are told would divide the wheat from the tares. That the Edomites could not receive the gospel. So they were resisting the apostles at every turn. And it is they whom Paul is really speaking about here. One chapter before this, he had spoken about how Satan was in the temple of God pretending to be God. And doing that, he used the present tense verbs. He didn't use future tense verbs. And the modern churches read those verbs and make them in future tense as if it's talking about some future Antichrist, when actually it was talking about the Antichrist of that time, which is the Jew, the Edomite Jews who rejected Christ. And that's who Paul had meant in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now here he's speaking about those same people who have resisted the gospel everywhere and who have sought to persecute Christians everywhere here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So examining this clause, according to Liddell and Scott, the conjunction gar, which is the second word of the clause, is argumentative to introduce the reason for a statement. 
which usually precedes. And this use, this primary use of the conjunction gar, fits this occasion perfectly, as Paul is explaining why there are men who are unreasonable and wicked who would oppose the spread of the gospel. So other uses of gar are exegetic and strengthening, and they do not fit the grammatical purpose or the context here. The lexicon further states that in Greek writing, and this isn't the only conjunction with which the Greeks had done this, and I don't know why they did it, but it states that in Greek writing, gar is regularly placed after the first word of a sentence. And that's absolutely true when you learn Greek. That's one of the first things that you'll learn when you look at conjunctions. Of course, that's not the case in English, but there's another conjunction, the word de, which can, it's a small two-letter word, which can mean then or but. And usually it means but. And de is always written as the second word in a sentence. But when we translate it into English, we got to translate it as the first word. And it's the same thing with gar. So here in my English translation, since the faith is not for all, gar is first. And it's translated as sense to introduce the reason for the statement which preceded. So after gar, and we're not getting to ooh yet, which is first in the Greek, but not in the English. After gar, there's a word pantone. And pantone is the genitive case plural of pas, which is all. It could be all or each or every, depending on whether it's singular or plural and depending on, depending on the context. So here it's plural and it should be all in this context. But it could have been translated as everyone because it's clearly speaking of people. So... The genitive case marks source or possession, and surely in this case it does not indicate source, as men are not the source of the faith. The particle ooh, which begins the clause, is a, it's an unconditional negative, as opposed to a conditional negative, may. So the Greeks had another word meaning no, which was a conditional negative. Ooh is unconditional. And here it negates pantone, the word which it follows, except that because of the way Greek was written, gar actually follows ooh, and then comes pantone. But the gar has to be removed from the statement, and the ooh negates pantone unconditionally. So it's not of all. The faith is not of all unconditionally. The verb I me means to be. It's not here. It's not in this clause. But it is unique among Greek verbs. And I'm going to quote Joseph Thayer in his Greek English lexicon of the New Testament, section 6 page 180, 
column B, section 6 under his definition of this word Aini, which means to be. So, Estin is the second person. You are. I'm sorry, it's not. Estin is the third person. He is, or she is, or it is, right? So Thayer says that as in classical Greek, so also in the New Testament, I me, which is the, it's actually the first person. And I nahi is the infinitive to be. But for some reason, and I don't know why they did this, and it causes a little confusion. The authors of lexicons, English lexicons, long, long ago, I don't know when the decision was made, but when they put the verbs into their dictionaries, they use the first person present tense to be the entry where the verb is defined. They don't use the infinitive. So they will say that in the lexicon, I me basically means to be. But that's not really true because the infinitive means to be. But they always group the verbs. They group the verbs and a list of verbs under the first person present. I don't know why they decided to do that, right? I don't have a clue. But that was done. That decision was made centuries ago. And all of the scholars that made lexicons have followed that convention ever since. So I don't know why. So I me is I am, but it means to be. Estin is the third person he is or she is or it is. So as in classical Greek, also in the New Testament, I me is very often omitted, meaning it's not written, but it's only inferred. Estin most frequently of all the parts. So, Estin is the third person present singular of I, me, and it is, it is, or simply is. Very often in English, we only have to write is. Um, John is tall is an example, right? So, the Greeks very often omitted this word. They didn't write it, but it's only inferred in the grammar. And examples of this are found pretty readily in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, where the is was omitted in the Greek, but we really have to supply it in order for the statement to make sense in English. And that's several times in chapter 1, chapter 3, three times here in chapter 3, in verses 1, 16, and 18 of this very epistle. And twice in chapter 1, I have examples, and there may be more, but perhaps I just didn't look for them all. Twice in chapter 1 in verses 5 and 6. So if you look in your King James Version Bible, in those passages, in chapter 5, it starts... In, in, I'm sorry, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 5, it starts with the words, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. And which is, 
is in italics. So the words are inferred in the Greek meaning of the passage, but they're not included in the Greek. And in English, for it to make sense, we really do have to add them in. So it's fine to add which is there. And in verse 6, it begins with the word, seeing it is a righteous thing. And right there, right again, it, it was the words, it is, are added to the text because they're in italics in the King James Version. And when we read the Greek, there is no word for is, but it's inferred in the grammar, and we really have to add it in English in order for it to make sense to English readers. So that happened often with the verb is. But it doesn't happen with the verb have. This verb we supply in its natural position following the subject of the clause. This word is. So the subject of the clause, we know the subject of the clause because it's in the nominative case in Greek. There are many different cases in Greek. Some grammarians count eight, but they're bundled into five different forms. Where a word can be written in one of five different forms, it shows which case the word is being used. So we had that noun pantone, which is all, and it's in the genitive case, and it's plural. Well, here the noun for faith is in the nominative case. And if it's in a nominative case, it must be the subject of the clause in Greek. So while in the Greek translation it is fair that the verb for is may sometimes be supplied by the translator, the same thing is not true of other verbs such as have. And here the King James translators added a verb for have. And that's not true of that verb. The phrase, hey pistis, the last two words of this clause, hey pistis means the faith. The noun being accompanied, the noun pistis being accompanied by the definite article. And it is in the nominative case. So being in a nominative case, it certainly cannot be the object of any verb. And that's how the King James Version has it. They've translated faith to be the object of a verb, have, a verb which doesn't even exist in the Greek. So they added the verb, and then they unrighteously and dishonestly took a nominative case noun and made it the object of a verb. But if the phrase, hey, pistis, was the object of any verb, it should have been written in the accusative case, tain pistin. But since hey, pistis is nominative, the words must be the subject of the clause. And, and I just want to drive that home because the dishonesty of the King James translators
in rendering this clause is blatant. It's blatant. This fact that the object of a verb should be in the accusative case and the subject is in a nominative case is a fundamental of Greek grammar and should be readily evident in any Greek grammar textbook. If Paul meant to infer the verb have, which is contrary to Greek grammar, faith could not be the object of that verb, period, or of any other verb, unless it were written in the accusative case. And Paul certainly knew how to write Greek, and he knew how to say what he meant. So evidently what he said did not please the King James translators. So they rewrote what he said. But what they wrote, when compared to the Greek text, is absolutely untenable. It's absolutely unacceptable and seems to have been purposely dishonest. Paul did not write, for all men have not faith. And the King James Version added two significant words, have and men, to create a lie and to twist what Paul had actually written. So our rendering of the text of this passage, because the conjunction gar introducing the reason for the statement which preceded is placed first in English and not second, it is sense. And then the next two words are the faith in our translation, because in English we are inclined to state the subject of the clause at its beginning is, because the verb estin is inferred, as it also was elsewhere in Paul's writing and in Greek generally, and then not, because the negative particle commonly precedes that which it negates. Whatever it negates, it precedes. And I've actually done that study to refute other errors in translation, which were made among early identity Christians in relation to a passage in Luke, and looked up every single occurrence of the negative particle in Luke's writing in the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke to find, to find that the negative particle always, without exception, preceded the word that it negates. So here, when we remove gar because of the quirk in Greek grammar which places it second in a sentence instead of first, then the negative particle must negate the word pantone, which is of all. So that negative that that genitive plural pantone is belonging to, it's of, or as we may say in English, for all, the word being in the genitive case. So the only way to honestly translate this clause in as few words as possible in English, because it's only five Greek words, 
is since the faith is not of all or for all. And for all is a proper and literal translation. Out of all of the major English translations which we have examined, and you could check this very easily on Bible Hub, on the Bible Hub website, only the Young's literal translation has it right, where it reads, For the faith is not of all. I chose to write more colloquially for since the faith is not for all in the Christogenian New Testament, so that the meaning would be even clearer in our modern English. And um, Young's little translation is pretty good, right? But even that still has plenty of um, mistakes where it will uh, not do it literally, but still warp it, right? When on certain doctrine points, right? It, yes, in certain places that are crucial to modern church doctrine, even Young ignores the literal meaning of some words, which is sad. So Especially it the should name be... of the Bible, right? Young, a literal sorry. translation where it's not literal, he, he still warps it. Yes, it's not literal everywhere, but it is literal in a lot of places. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's sad. <clears throat> but... A lot of these men just can't get past the church doctrines that they have known and adhered to or believed for 50, 60, 70 years, however long they've lived. Doctrine governs how they translate the Bible instead of what the Greek of the Bible saying creating their doctrine or helping them to understand the important doctrine which is the doctrine of God, which is what the Bible actually lays out. And they want to cleave to their traditions, and that blinds them in a lot of ways. They may not have, Young may not have even done it purposely, but took it for granted that certain things meant what the church says they mean and followed along. And that's why, sadly, today um, it's sometimes easier to explain Christian identity to someone who knows nothing about Christianity, right, than someone who does know a lot about it. Right, because all the or people think that think that they know a lot about Christianity, they know a lot of church doctrine, and they're taking new patches and putting them on old cloth, and it breaks apart every single time. You have to, when you learn Christian identity, you have to wipe the slate clean, read the Bible again from beginning to end, and read it with the true perception of the identity of the people of God in mind, and everything falls into place. Once you understand that the modern Jews are these ancient Canaanites who infiltrated the assemblies of God time and again throughout time, and that the people of Christian Europe, to whom the apostles had brought the gospel, they brought that gospel to them because they are the true lost sheep of the house of Israel. Everything falls into place, and there is no more conflict in Scripture, and you no longer have to twist passages such as all men have not faith 
when that's not what the original Greek means. Not at all. And um, it even took the apostles a few years, right? And even Paul needed three years to have that fresh, raw look until he finally got it, right? Well, yes, absolutely. I believe that if you compare, as we probably already have here, the commission of Paul to what Josephus and, and represented that the Pharisees and Sadducees had believed at the time, and what the New Testament betrays them as having believed, and how angry they were with Paul for bringing the gospel of Christ to nations outside of Judea. Because at that point, in Acts chapter 20, they wanted to kill him because he said that. So, when you compare that to the promises of Christ, which are in the Old Testament, Paul, who had believed like the Pharisees and Sadducees believed before his awakening on the road to Damascus, he went off and studied for three years before he went to Jerusalem professing Christianity. It took him three years, ostensibly, to relearn the scripture. And having a background education in both scripture and the Greco-Roman classics, he was able to reconcile his commission with the words of the prophets and see where the children of Israel were so that he could take the gospel to them as he was commissioned to the nations and kings of the children of Israel. And that should be a lesson for us that we also need to um, learn all the history to, to fully understand it, right? Just like Paul. Absolutely. And that's why when I first discovered or, or was introduced to Christian identity in 1997, I read a half dozen or so, maybe a dozen, probably two dozen, I don't remember, Christian identity books. Some of them were British Israel and some of them were later, Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compré, um, E. Raymond Capt, and I read so much, and I decided to set it all aside and study the classics and spent 10 years reading classics, aside from my biblical studies. And that's why, and studying Greek, and that's why, because I wanted to learn it from scratch without the influences of British Israel or, or and, and all the mistakes that they made along the way, and, and they made many mistakes. So I tried to eliminate those. That's why a lot of so-called traditional British Israel or American Christian identity beliefs that are held by men like... Um, Ted Wieland and, and Pete Peters and a lot of those other turkeys, and, and some of them are turkeys and deserve that. Both of those men deserve that label. That, that's why I don't repeat them. That's why I don't repeat a lot of things British Israel taught, because I don't believe it's right. I just rather omit it. So I've tried to actually filter my Christian identity understanding through what I could prove what I could open up in Diodorus Siculus or Strabo of Cappadocia and read out of an ancient book, 
That's more important. And we can. And when we get to the end, we realize that Christian identity is true. And there's no other paradigm for the history of our race that's true. So it should be evident that the faith is not for all, because it is only for the children of Israel. If the faith is for one race only, then that race must be the white race, as Paul had taken the faith to Europe, to white Europeans, and to no others. Furthermore, once it is realized that the faith is not for all, it should become evident whom Paul had wanted white Europeans to come out from among, as we shall now discuss his admonition to come out from among them in a passage which is also poorly translated in the King James Version. Yeah, and if you look for history, it's pretty clear that um, once we had white Europe and once we accepted Christianity, we dominated the whole world, right? And as soon as um, we started going against this, um, be separate, it all went downhill. And and the way things are going, if you think that you can, um, you know, if you if you kind of understand Revelation that Babylon's going to fall and you think that you need to get out of the sea, but you can still be with other races that then you're doomed right they will eventually devour you and all you're going to do is repeat the same mistake it's clear that um getting out amongst them should be white europeans right and that you'd even be better off with a white pagan than any other non-whites right uh, ideally we want uh christian communities but we should have absolutely nothing to do with these other races right well it's absolutely true and we're going to see that here and and we've discussed many aspects of this in the past in relation to the mistranslations. But this admonition come out from among them, it's a proof in itself that Christianity is for one particular people only. Who are they being told to come out from among? So that they could distinguish themselves. Because the gospel message was for the children of Israel alone. The children of Israel scattered abroad. And there were others among them who were not necessarily children of Israel. Because this certainly was at least a modicum of Canaanite blood among the Spartans, among the Athenians, among the Phoenicians. And the gospel was intended to separate the wheat from the tares. My sheep hear my voice. So if you, in that wider society, and we'll call it the ancient Roman society, because it is the Roman Empire that is the world of the time, there's wheat and tares throughout the empire, and the children of Israel are commanded to come out from among them as Christians accept the gospel and live by it. They distinguish themselves from the enemies of God who remain, who insist on remaining pagan and rejecting the gospel and even persecuting it or insist on clinging to a dead Judaism and the rituals and, and circumstances that go along with that and reject the gospel for that reason, 
the reprobates, the spurious, and I think we'll talk about the spurious a little later, the spurious men among us who are naturally of our race can't accept the gospel and will eventually fall off. But in this modern world, the dynamic is very different. And Christianity, as you said, became the faith of the entire white Western world. And from the times of these Jesuits and these other crypto-Jews in Spain and Portugal and other places in Europe that infiltrated Christianity once again from the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, and especially from the 12th century, they instilled this idea into the Roman Catholic Church that the other races should be forcibly subjugated to Christianity and forcibly converted. That everybody in the world, on the planet, should be a Christian. There were Jesuits in China, and the Jesuits are a holy Jewish organization. There were Jesuits in China in the 13th century opening banks and trying to convert Orientals to Christianity. And at one point, they were run out of there. It's they who led the missionary trend into the black races of Africa. Yeah, you wonder if right there they came up with a scheme that if they can... Um forcefully convert Africans, then they could start race mixing. They could start bringing them in and um, trick us to think, well, if they're Christian, then we can marry them, right? Absolutely. And and that was the first step in the corruption of, of the modern world, was that those missionary German journeys and, and those missions to these other races in South America and Mexico, and, and when the conquistadors went into South America and Mexico, they didn't drive out the Indians. They didn't drive out the other races and take the land for themselves. They mingled with them. But a large number of them were crypto-Jews and Jews escaping the Inquisition. And um, one thing um, I meant to ask you, Bill, don't, don't you think it's funny? It's a it's exactly the same how um, when we went into the land of Canaan, we had all these Canaanites and we're told don't uh, convert them or be with them, just wipe them out. And then when the Europeans started colonizing the world, they had the exact same um, dilemma, right? When they're coming to all these uh, so-called natives in Americas. And at first we did, but then we made the exact same mistake, right? It's ourselves and uh, going into Canaan, that should have been a lesson that we realized uh, not to make the same mistake, but unfortunately we did, right? Well, right, but right up to the time of... Um... Alexander Jackson and Martin Van Buren, U.S. presidents were, on, I said Alexander Jackson, and that's not right, I'm sorry, it's Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. I'm trying to think of two different things at once. Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren had been trying to drive the Indian tribes in the East out, totally. And, and destroy them, marginalize them, get them out of the land so that white settlers could have that land. And 
build and perpetuate a Christian white society. So that's only 170 years ago, perhaps. 100 and, 160 years ago. It's not that long ago. So for a time, that was actually the prevailing attitude. It was the, I believe, in my opinion, it was mostly the French Catholics, missionaries among French Catholics who were trying to convert the Indians to Christianity and, and civilize them and bring them into our civilization. But there were other Protestant groups that had those sentiments. Come out from among them. This is our 87th proof in the series. In the later half of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul of Tarsus began to warn his readers not to have fellowship with those who are outside of the faith. So we read in the King James Version, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? This translation, which we would assert is wrong, it causes a serious conflict. It really does. It is demonstrable that this epistle was written only a few months after Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. There's not a lot of time between these two epistles. The first epistle was written shortly before Paul left Ephesus in the spring of 56 AD. And the second epistle was written as Paul wintered in Nicopolis at the end of that same year. So there's not more than eight or ten months between the writing of these two epistles. He told the Corinthians in his first epistle that he was going to stay in Ephesus until the Pentecost and that he was coming to see them. And then he left Ephesus that spring and he went to the Troad and he crossed into Macedonia and he went to Macedonia. He must have received another epistle from the Corinthians, an answer to 1 Corinthians, which troubled him. So instead of going into Corinth in time for winter, where he'd originally thought of doing, which he mentioned in 1 Corinthians, he decided to go to Nicopolis and spend the winter there. And when he got there, Titus and Timothy had both joined him, and he, he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians and sent it to them with Titus ahead of his own arrival in Corinth. So he wanted to warn them further about what his attitudes were when he visited them, when he chose to finally visit them. So he gets to Corinth in the spring of 57. And this second epistle went ahead of him. And he's telling them to be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. The churches interpret this as a religious statement. It's not a religious statement. From the time that Paul had written 
his first epistle to the Corinthians in the spring of 56 AD. There is no reason that we should believe that Paul may have changed his mind about anything. And we should not believe that he was contradicting himself in these two epistles. But earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul was discussing the dilemma of men and women who became Christians, but whose spouses did not accept the gospel. And he wrote, And to the unmarried I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. And the woman which has a husband that believes not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So, if Paul is merely speaking of unbelievers here, is he contradicting himself? He would have to be contradicting himself. He would have to be contradicting himself in epistles, which were demonstrably, demonstrably written only a few months apart from one another. We certainly should not imagine that Paul is contradicting himself. Paul defined the faith in Romans chapter 4. The faith is not what an individual believes. Rather, the faith is what Abraham had believed. And as we have also just discussed here recently, it is the promises to Abraham, not to individuals. God didn't make any individuals any promises in, in the scope of the new covenant. Christ came to assure the promises to Abraham not to individual Christians of the first century or later. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul had written, in part, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And Paul is explaining that the promises that Abraham and his offspring would inherit the world were separate from the giving of the law, and they're above and beyond the giving of the law. And it was Abraham's faith, which is the righteousness of faith, not your faith or my faith or some church pastor's faith or what he wants to call faith. So Paul wrote, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, in other words, not to those who are just keeping the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, not their own faith, but the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And it's not faith like Abraham, it's the faith of Abraham. So it's not what we might believe, it's what Abraham believed. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. And Paul will explain that shortly. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead 
and calls those things which be not, meaning that those many nations didn't exist at the time when the promise was made, but they they would exist because God assured Abraham that his seed would become many nations. So Paul wrote, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So God is referring to these many nations as if they existed before they actually existed, because he knows, being God, that they certainly were going to exist at some point in the future. So, going back to Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, not any other way. God never said that many nations were going to become Abraham's seed, which is what the churches teach. God said Abraham's seed would become many nations. So Paul said that the promise that he might become the father of many nations was according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So where Paul said not to that only which is of the law, it is evident that most of Abraham's offspring, having been taken into captivity, had abandoned the law while only a small portion remained to keep the law, those who returned from captivity to Jerusalem. Furthermore, Yahweh God calls those things which be not as though they were, means that he spoke of those nations that did not yet exist when the promise was made, and they did not yet exist because they would come from Abraham's seed, which had not yet been born. So what Abraham believed as Paul also explained there in Romans, is that his own offspring would become many nations and that those nations would inherit the world. That is the faith of Abraham of which Paul spoke in Romans and it is what Abraham believed to which Paul referred here in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians. They are the lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom Christ had come. And coming for them, he was keeping those promises which he had made with Abraham since he was Yahweh God incarnate, who we're told came to come the promises that were to keep the promises that were made with Abraham. Luke chapter 1. I don't see how Christians could deny this. I don't see how they could believe anything differently. This is crystal clear in not only the epistles of Paul, but in all the words of the prophets. So therefore, if a man or woman had an unbelieving spouse who was of the seed of Abraham, that unbelieving spouse was nevertheless of the faith of Abraham and was included, or I should say, and is included in the covenants and the promises in Christ. So yeah, not... either Abraham's seed became many nations and as numerous as the stars or the sand or Yahweh lied to him, right? It's just as simple as that. Right, it is. We had already explained much of what we were about to say in relation to this passage in our earlier presentation on mistranslations, but here we shall review it again. Because this stands as a proof on its own, on its own, 
Paul is not contradicting himself. He didn't write one thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and neglect it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So this phrase must believe or must mean something different than the way that the church is translated. It must. Otherwise, Paul's just contradicting himself and speaking out of both sides of his mouth. We cannot, and I've said this often, we cannot force a writer who wrote in ancient Greek to contradict himself when we make a translation of his writing, especially a writer of scripture. We can't force Paul to contradict himself with our translations of his words. What we must do, if there is an option, we must translate those words in a manner in which he does not contradict himself. And here, there certainly is an option. So, admittedly, the opening sentence of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that opening clause, I should say, even though it contains only four Greek words, it is very difficult to translate in as few words in English, or probably in any other language. So the Greek phrase, which is me, genesthe, heterozuguntes, apistois, four words. In the Christogenian New Testament, it is rendered, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. The King James Version has here, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the denominational churches and their translators generally interpret this to be a religious admonition. And that would have Paul conflict with his own statements, such as those in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we have just explained, where he advised men and women who were already married to unbelievers to continue in their marriage. Doing that, the churches make Paul out to be a liar, contradicting himself. Can we force Paul to be a liar? Is that just? It's certainly not just. In that clause, Meganeste heterozuguntes apistois. The King James translators rendered an adjective as a noun, which was apparently necessary for them to do because they did not render the verb, which is heterozuguntes, as fully or properly as they could have. And I should say the participle verb, because there's actually two verbs in that passage. The other one being genesta. So they also ignored the meaning of the verb, heterozuguntes, where a different form of the same word was used in the Septuagint. And this is not a religious statement, and we hope to make that evident upon an examination of these two terms, heterozugeo, which is the, as I said, is the dictionary form, the first person present singular, 
and apistus, which is the nominative form of the adjective. Apistois is a dative plural form. I believe it's plural. Yes, it's definitely a dative plural masculine form. Okay, so in the Christianian New Testament, it is do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. And I will try to explain why. The verb heterozugeo doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament or in the Septuagint. However, there is a corresponding adjective, heterozugus, which does appear in the Septuagint. And it only appears once, as far as I know. And that's at Levit Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, where the King James Version has from the Hebrew, of course. <clears throat> Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Now, the Septuagint Greek to that passage, translated from, we would hope from the same Hebrew, right, is ta katene su, which is your cattle. And then u kato which is do not let gender. And that verb, catocusis, implies, or I should say, infers the act of sexual intercourse. I'm sorry. I was right the first time. It implies the act of sexual intercourse. I always get those two words confused. So, do not let your cattle have sexual intercourse. And then we see the word, the adjective, heterozugo, which is the dated form of heterozugus, which is with a diverse kind. And since the idea of being yoked was already implicit, it's implicit in the zugus part of heterozugus, but it's also implicit in that word catocusis, that verb, which catocuo is actually the dictionary form, and it in it it means to be having to be coupled together in sexual intercourse, basically, in this context and the idea of being yoked was already implicit. So the English translators don't repeat it. So Brenton's English, as it was translated from the Greek, varies little from the King James Version English, which was translated from the Hebrew, where he has to read in part, Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with one of a different kind. And that's how that heterozugous word was read in the Septuagint, because that's what it means to be yoked together with something different. But this is dishonest also. And Liddell and Scott, as much as they have a wonderful Greek lexicon, 
Sometimes they followed church definitions instead of the meanings of the words, especially for words that they don't have, where they don't have authorities in secular Greek writing defining those words. If a word doesn't, there are many words which we don't have in other Greek literature. Those words must have been Greek words. They must have been found in literature of the time, but that literature, they don't survive in any of the Greek classical or Hellenistic writings which we have today. So we only have them in the Septuagint or in the New Testament. And there are quite a few words which are only attested in the New Testament or in the Septuagint and not in any Greek writings. So in those cases, Liddell and Scott would just very often follow the church definition. And they did that here. And their definition for the verb, heterozugeo, that appears here in the New Testament, they followed the King James Version. And they have to be yoked in unequal partnership. But the Liddell and Scott definition for the adjective heterozugus, which appears in Leviticus in the Septuagint, they have coupled with an animal of diverse kind. In reference to people, that can only mean to be coupled with someone of another race. And therefore, it is evident that both the King James Version and Liddell and Scott are attempting to convince us that the verb form of the word somehow has a totally different meaning than the adjective. And that's absurd. And you'd think just logically, if you're not meant to, um, you know, blend plants and animals, that the same thing would apply with us, right? He's not going to suddenly make an exception, Yahweh, that there's always this kind after kind throughout Scripture, right? Well, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And while I don't have it in my notes, the place where this command appears is significant. And that's because in Leviticus chapter eight, chapter 19, in verse 18, the very verse which precedes this one, we have the only commandment in the law to love your neighbor, and it also defines who your neighbor is. And it says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So we see there the commandment to love thy neighbor, and neighbor is defined as one of the children of thy people, because that's what neighbor refers to in that passage. And then immediately after that, in the very next verse, verse 19, ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind, using this word, heterozugus. And then the next clause, Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. And then the next clause, 
Neither shall a garment mingled of woolen, woolen and linen, or linen and woolen, come upon thee, meaning flax and a wool, generally. Linen was made from flax, and woolen, of course, comes from sheared sheep. But here, the word for woolen is actually from a Hebrew term. So woolen is a poor definition in the King James Version. It's a Hebrew term meaning mixed stuff. Fabric of mixed weave. So we're not supposed to mix fabrics according to the law. We're certainly not supposed to sow a field with different sorts of seed according to the law. And we're not supposed to mix our animals with even yoke them together in the field with animals of a different kind. But we're not supposed to let our animal's gender, which is, which implies the act of sexual intercourse and reproduction with animals of a different kind. We're not supposed to make mules out of horses and donkeys. We're not supposed to bastardize our different breeds of poultry or cattle. It's hard to know if um, any of our, uh, you know, domesticated animals are even the original ones anymore, right? After all these thousands of years. Who knows, right? Well, that's absolutely true. We really don't know because we don't have sufficient records of the precise biological types of animals from 7,000 years ago. Furthermore, this word, heterozygous, being a compound word from heteros, which is another or different, and zugus, which is a yoke, it means to be yoked to something different, and not merely to be unequally yoked in some philosophical or religious sense. It does not refer to being coupled, coupled with people of different beliefs, but to people of other kinds. The word heteros describing flesh in the disciple of Jude was translated as strange flesh in the King James Version in the context of people of other races. I've already discussed this simple concept in these presentations at least a few times, I believe. Different forms of the same basic word must share the same basic meaning whether they be noun, verb, or adjective. The words call as a noun, to call as a verb, and calling, caller, or called as nouns, verbs, or adjectives all share the same basic meaning relating to the same action. So if the adjective heterozygous means coupled with an animal of a diverse kind, then the verb heterozygio means to be coupled with an animal of a diverse kind, or perhaps to couple 
an animal to a diverse kind. So for that reason, here in the Christogenian New Testament, for the verb, heterozugeo, we have yoked together with aliens, preferring the idea that the verb, as it was used by Paul, surely bore the same meaning that it did, that the adjective did in the Greek scriptures of the Septuagint, which Paul had so often quoted verbatim. He was familiar with the language of the Septuagint. And we must also contrast this word with suzugus, which is used in the New Testament only once by Paul at Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, and which Liddell and Scott define as being yoked together or paired. And they, they cite this phrase, suzugus hamaliahi, as meaning wedded union in the writing of Aeschylus, and as a feminine substantive, refers to a wife in the writing of Euripides, or it refers to a mass in the masculine gender, a yoke fellow or comrade, which is found in both the Iliad and in the writings of Aristotle. So it is of marriage that Christ had used the corresponding verb, suzugnumi, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, and Matthew chapter 10, verse 9, speaking of marriage, to be yoked together. And su just means with or together, while zugnumi means to yoke. So heteros means other or other than or different. And a zugus, as a noun, is anything which joins two bodies, which could refer to a literal yoke in, in a farmer's field with oxen, or to the bond of marriage with people, or a bond of friendship between men. So, Zucus is anything which yokes two bodies, according to Liddell and Scott, and it is commonly a yoke, very often in Scripture, in the New Testament even. So, Paul wanted to tell us not to be yoked together with the unfaithful, Suzugus was the word to use. Rather, he was clearly using heterozugeo in the same way that heterozugus was used in the Septuagint and telling us not to be yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. An examination of Paul's epistles reveals that his quotations were very frequently taken verbatim from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, and therefore he was highly familiar with its language. So now we're going to discuss the other word, apistus, which we have translated as untrustworthy because it's basically an adjective. The word apistus is an adjective and not a noun, which Liddell and Scott define as not to be trusted, not trusty, distrusted, or faithless. Yet it is treated in the King James Version as a substantive, as a noun in this verse, 
and translated as unbelievers. The Christogenia New Testament has the word as an adjective, which is what it is. If Paul wanted to use this word as the substantive, in order to clarify what he had meant, the use of a definite article would have cleared up any ambiguity. But there is no article at all. So we have chosen to render the participle verb, and that doesn't have an article either, but participle verbs are very frequently also used as substantives, sometimes more often than adjectives are. So we have chosen to render the participle verb heterozuguntes as the substantive. But in truth, we would read the two words together in that same manner as they seem to be interdependent, even though the parsable verb is in a nominative case and the adjective is in the dative case. So with all of this, if we wanted to remain precisely true to the grammar, we would assert that another way to translate this clause from Greek is do not become yoked together with those of other races or aliens who are not to be trusted, which is also a literal translation. Or if we would insist that apistos is the substantive, we would write, do not become yoked together with the faithless of other races, which is also literal. Either way represents a message that is consistent with all scripture, and both ways express the true meanings of the original words. But all this only helps us to understand what Paul had meant in the rest of the passage, and especially a, tr a few verses later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, which is the real reason why this is a proof where the King James Version unjustly adds the word thing to the text. So the Christogenian New Testament reads this passage as follows. Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the Prince or Lord, and do not be joined to the impure or unclean, perhaps, and I will admit you. And here we must assert that the reference to the impure is a direct reference to the subject earlier in the statement, which is them come out from the midst of them. And therefore, no added words are necessary in order to understand this verse. So if we read this passage without the added word thing, in the King James Version, it would say, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you. And unclean describes the them from whom the children of Israel are commanded to be separate. And it goes back to Christ saying, not all of you are unclean, right? That Absolutely. other races who are not clean, no matter what, right? Not all are clean, period. Because Judas, out of the twelve, was not an, a true Israelite. 
Christ cleaned his feet, but even then, he wasn't clean. There's no indication in the gospel that Christ skipped the feet of Judas. And that literally fulfills the statement that my old familiar friend has lifted up the heel against me. Because he lifted his feet up so that Christ could clean them. And Judas betrayed him anyway, even after Christ cleaned his feet. And that cleaning of the feet was really only symbolic of the cleansing that would come on the cross. So Christ said, ye are not all clean. Because he wasn't going to cleanse Judas on the cross. Judas could not have been an Israelite. This passage that we see in 2 Corinthians 6.17, where it says, come out from among them and be separate, is a paraphrase. It's not an exact quote. It's a paraphrase from Isaiah chapter 52, where it says, from verse 10, the Lord has made bear his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That doesn't mean all the ends of the earth are going to be saved. That doesn't mean everybody on the planet is going to be saved. Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean. And again, the King James translators had the word thing in italics. Touch no unclean. Thing. Go ye out from the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Those vessels of Yahweh aren't cups and bowls and saucers. That's a reference to the bodies, the physical bodies of the people of Israel who carry that spirit which Yahweh had bestowed upon the Adamic man. The vessel being a container the vessel, the body being a vessel containing the spirit. So once again, in that translation of Isaiah, the King James had added that word thing to the text. And when you look this passage up in Bible works or in the paper lexicon, the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon acknowledges that the form of the Hebrew word in that passage is a masculine adjective and it, it describes someone unclean ethically, I would say ethnically, or religiously, citing Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 and, and several other passages, or someone unclean ritually, again speaking of persons, and they have several citations which support that. In my notes here, I will have these two, the Greek of these two passages side by side from 2 Corinthians 6.17 from the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greke and from Ralph's Septuagint version of Isaiah chapter 52 verse 11. And I've underlined the words that are similar, the phrases that are similar, which Paul had obviously paraphrased 
in his second epistle to the Corinthians. He was obviously paraphrasing from this passage in Isaiah 52.11. I won't repeat them here because they're only Greek and it would be nonsense to most readers. It's not necessary to repeat them here for this exhibition. But there are two phrases which Paul had used in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 which are which correspond absolutely with phrases in Isaiah 52:11 in the Greek that Paul was certainly paraphrasing this Greek so where Paul had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 come out from the midst of them and be separated he was referring to people just as Isaiah was, and it is only a further admonition where it says, and do not be joined to the impure or unclean, which describes the people from whom they were expected to separate themselves. And this in turn was written to clarify what Paul had meant where he wrote just a few verses earlier do not become yoked with the faithless of other races, which we have given here as one plausible and literal translation. And we therefore see an interpretation which describes Paul as having offered a narrative that is fully consistent with all of his other statements. So in the same light, there is another adjective all of his other statements in his other epistles, I should state, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Romans chapter 4. And in the same light, there is another adjective which is mistranslated in this epistle in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul beckoned his readers and the King James Version has, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. He didn't say examine yourselves whether you have faith, but whether you be in the faith. How are you in the faith? You're in the faith by being what Abraham believed, that his offspring would become many nations. So if you're not of the true offspring of Abraham, you're not in the faith. If you're not one of the lost sheep in the house of Israel, you're not in the faith. You can't make yourself in the faith. You can't choose to be in the faith. You have to be what Abraham believed. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And that word adokimus translated as reprobates or reprobates is an adjective and here in the King James Version it's translated as a noun it should rather have been rendered as an adjective and it means spurious spurious people are considered bastards in scripture spurious people cannot be cleaned the intermediate Liddell and Scott lexicon defines the word adokimus to mean not standing the test, spurious, properly of coin, metaphorically of persons, rejected as false, disreputable, reprobate, 
etc. But a coin is spurious when it is not pure, when it is mixed with base metals. And therefore, we would cross-reference this verse to Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul wrote, But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Chastisement is punishment for correction. It's punishment for a purpose. And Yahweh had promised to punish the children of Israel for their correction. He never promised anybody else. Only bastards are spurious in that sense when they are not properly sons. And this brings us to evoke what we had already said in our last translation, in, I'm sorry, in our last presentation concerning what Yahweh had cleansed and his admonition to Peter in Acts chapter 10. Bastards are not being cleansed. Only what Yahweh had cleansed are being cleansed. Only what he had promised to cleanse in the Old Testament prophets. And if there are men whom Yahweh had not cleansed, then they must be the unclean from whom Paul had warned his readers to separate themselves. And in all the promises of the prophets, Yahweh said that he had cleansed the children of Israel alone. So this is going to lead us to discuss the entire purpose of the blood of the Lamb, and that will have to wait for our next presentation. Yeah, and obviously, um, if you're somewhat awake, you realize that there is that these other races are spurious, right? Their, their very nature, it's always uh, contrary to us, and uh, um, th there's a reason why we should separate them, right? All they, they always seek... bring our civilizations down. All they seek is our favor so that they could profit from us within our own society. Even the, the missionaries in Africa, and, and I think it was Compare that loved to tell the story in this manner because it's absolutely true. The missionaries, the Christian missionaries would go to Africa and the African savages would cook them and eat them. So the Christian miss missionaries started going to Africa with food and, and supplies to give it to the Africans, hoping they wouldn't be eaten, so that they could force Christianity on these African savages. So they would be able to tame the Africans and keep them relatively tame so long as they had supplies of food and other goods with which to give the Africans. And as soon as the missionaries got up and pulled out of Africa, they fell back into their same non-Christian primeval state, uncivilized primeval state, where they once again started trading their own people for slaves and, and selling their own people into slavery and raping their boys and girls and, and eating each other or eating the neighboring tribes because people are easier to catch than food, I guess. They would fall right back into that state. So 50 years later, the missionaries would come again with more food and supplies and introduce Christianity to them again, but it never stuck. It never sticks. 
without su close supervision and the authority and power of force or the gifts of which are basically bribery. Christianity never took root in sub-Saharan Africa. So, if these people don't see that there are rewards, temporal worldly rewards, for conforming to white Christian society, then they are never going to conform to white Christian society. But when the gospel was brought to white Europeans and they began to understand it, they accepted the gospel at the cost of their livelihoods, at the cost of their houses and their goods. They lost everything. They were martyred for 300 years. They sacrificed everything for the gospel of Christ until it eventually prevailed and civilized all of Europe. And, and there were some tribes. I'm sorry. I said, well, you just said about Africa, once Babylon falls, people are going to wake up and realize that, right? Once you haven't got um, the convenience of supermarkets and easy food and, and water and heating and, and it all starts to break down, you're going to re see the real beast in these people, right? Well, right, but they're seeing it already and they should awaken to it and they're still not awakening to it. Look at how this Black Lives Matter movement has destroyed many American cities over the past two years. And they're always threatening to riot and destroy more cities. And, and now they're moving into suburbs to destroy them too if they don't get their way. And, and their way is to do away with the rule of law. And without the rule of law, we cannot have a godly Christian society. They want to. Africa is already here. And now that Africa is here, they want to live by the law of the jungle. Because that's the only law they really understand. That might makes right. They could take whatever they could get away with. Rape, pillage, plunder, anything they could get away with. They want to disarm the white man and open up the doors of the prison houses so that we could be brought down to the level of the jungle beast that they really are, that they truly are. And that's what really what all they want to do, right, is just roam around white neighborhoods and just take whatever they want, right? Yep. Rape our women, rape our daughters, rape our sons, loot and pillage our goods. That's all they want. Put us out of our houses, starve us to death in the streets, rape us to death, brutally beat or burn or kill us, and live by the law of the jungle that they've lived for for 50,000 years or however many tens of thousands of years in sub-Saharan Africa. That is their inherent nature. Judas had his inherent nature as a devil. They have their own inherent nature as beasts. And the inherent nature is always going to prevail. Okay. They are being used by Yahweh our God to punish us 
until we cease from our sin and repent. And that was the same pattern that you see throughout the book of Judges. The children of Israel would start to worship idols and fall into a state of sin. And that worshiping of idols has a lot more to do than just praying or bowing down before a statue. It's how you live your life. And the associated pagan practices that go along with that. So they began to worship idols, and that caused them to sin much more grievously, to race mix, to to live hedonistic pagan lifestyles, to eat all the unclean foods and, and engage in revelry with other races. Well, the same thing's going on today. So the Canaanites would come, or the Philistines would come and conquer them and oppress them for 20 years or 40 years, and then they would repent, and Yahweh God would raise them up a, a man that would lead them to victory and throw off the yoke of, of the enemy as soon as they repented. And then another 20 or 40 years would go by, and they'd slip back into the same pattern of sin, and the Philistines or the Canaanites or the Moabites would come and oppress them and conquer them and rule over them once again. It was the same pattern over and over. That's not a mistake. That's what's happening today. And today we're being ruled over by Canaanites and infested with beasts and we're being punished once again. And don't be surprised if this coming summer a few more cities don't burn to the ground. Yeah, so when you read the Old Testament, it's all teaching you exactly what's going on today and, and what we should be doing, right? Like the judges period, the kingdom period, uh, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We should be repenting of our sins, turning back to our God, who is Yahshua Christ, and begging for deliverance. But that pattern, there is no other pattern. We must first repent of our sins. And for the average white Christian to repent of his sins, well, the women have to put their clothes back on and we have to drop the pornography and get away from Hollywood and get away from the usury-based lust for unnecessary goods and, and luxuries which perpetuate this entire artificial Jewish banking economy. And... and just get back to white Christian basics. We have to stop worshiping these niggers that run footballs up and down the field. We have to get out of the whole organized sports mentality of life being a series of games and contests between players on the field and, and feeling good when our team wins and basically worshiping our quarterbacks and our major league baseball pictures, pitchers. It, it's childish. It's, it's ridiculous. The state to which our society is sunk in Jewish movies and, and sports entertainment. It's incredible. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh and good night.